I'm Stacey Richter, so pleased to be here and have a chance to welcome you to the Aspirational Healthcare Conference today, day two. I hope everyone had a chance to check out one of the breakout sessions this morning, but regardless, we have an action-packed day for you today. Um, before I get into what's in store, let's start here. Your answers on the pre-conference survey were really enlightening, so I definitely want to talk about them, but I'd like to do this in context, so just bear with me a moment. Someone asked me the other day, and I'm embarrassed to say I never really um, thought about this before, but they put me on the spot and asked, since I've interviewed over 300 really interesting and knowledgeable people from across the healthcare industry on the Relentless Health Value podcast, which I, hope, which I host, um, what my major takeaways have been. How would I sum up the collective wisdom there? Well, okay. I hope no one has dinner plans tonight. But, you know, after I really started to process that question, I realized that, yeah, there, there are some themes that at this juncture are brutally self-evident and, and really um, undisputable at this time. You know, like themes that no matter who I talk to or what their experience is or where they come from in the business are just undeniable. And these themes do have an interesting correspondence to the survey answers that, that you all or some of you maybe, um, turned in. So let's, let's discuss. Here's my number one takeaway, and then let me connect the dots to your answers to both of the questions. Are relationships the foundation of the healthcare system that enables superior care at half the price? And also, are employee goals the same as employer goals? So let's talk about those two things in tandem, as well as my number one takeaway from my podcast guests, which is this. We have some amazing doctors, nurses, clinical professionals in this country who put their lives on the line during this pandemic this past year and every year. There are many, many people working in healthcare companies uh, and institutions who are trying to do the right thing by their patients, to blow whistles, to transform how they work, to create relationships with their patients. And patients love their physicians and care teams for these reasons. They seek out relationships, and when they get them, they're so, so loyal. You know, Lee Lewis yesterday talked about an anecdote with his Uber driver who was raving about her doctor, and the reason why is because she had a relationship with that doctor. They fear desperately either having to give up those doctors like the one that the Uber driver had, or, you know, feel like they're cheating on them somehow, or will get themselves fired as a patient by being part of any initiative, you know, to transform a system with their employer. You know, and the answers on the survey really reflect this, by the way, so it seems like something that you all know well. There was one answer I particularly liked to this question. Someone answered, um, the physician and patient know each other when care and time are taken to understand the whole patient. The relationship builds trust and also improves outcome, outcomes. And that's, you know, substantiated by science. <clears throat> I interviewed excuse me, I interviewed Rebecca Etz on the, the podcast from the Greenberg Center, and, you know, she has any number of, of studies that, that prove that point, that relationships actually lead to better outcomes. This being said, now let's talk about the, the, the question, are employees and employers on the same page? Because, you know, it's a real thing. Without the employees walking the walk, I don't need to tell anyone in this room how hard it is to have any impact. 
So, you know, how do we at the same time recognize that there's great doctors out there, but also get employees on board with this? I, I don't know how many of you may have heard about something called physician moral injury. It's, it's a thing, like physician burnout is a thing. Moral injury is associated with, here's the definition, profound distress and intense emotions of shame, guilt, or self-loathing. You know, this is shame, guilt, and self-loathing that's arising when doctors and nurses across the country have had their morals injured. You know, do a search on moral injury and you'll get like 9 million hits. This is what our healthcare system is doing to our frontline heroes. You know, I was talking to Dr. Mark Fendrick from U of Michigan on the show, and he was telling me that when he hears about a patient who goes and gets a colonoscopy, a cancer is detected early, so it's treatable. And then that same patient goes into financial debt because of the cost of care. He said to me, he's like, it's heartbreaking. And it is heartbreaking, right? So, you know, here's my aspirational takeaway, right, from, from, from all of this. These individual doctors and nurses and other clinicians and social workers and coaches really deserve the halo that their patients and we all honor them with. Everything that we're talking about today, where we work together to change the healthcare system, make no mistake, those who have moral standards that are high enough to be injured, they're on our side, right? We're all on the same team. You know, so everybody here who's helping to straighten out the perverse incentives in healthcare enables and emboldens change agents from within. You know, how do we make employees realize that what we're doing here actually helps doctors that we so admire? That's still an open question, but it's really what we need to do. Here's my number two takeaway. Um, you know that halo that I was just talking about, the one that rightfully our amazing doctors and nurses deserve? The problem is that others with far less noble intentions sit in the glow of that halo and do all manner of basically unscrupulous things and charge way too much money for it. You all know this well. Um, someone on the survey uh, had a response, and this was what she wrote. Our current system has successfully created many of the wealthiest corporations on the planet, ever-expanding sickness and disease cover, ever-expanding revenue and margin expectations, healthy people drive lower revenue. That's, that's kind of it in, in a nutshell. Here's the aspirational takeaway from that. As employers or patients, you control the money. You know, many people who are in this room today know that. You're the payers. And there's some latent power in this, especially if everybody gangs up. Um, the, the trick, and it's not easy, as many of you know, far better than me, you know, you, we have to make sure that we're engaging employees and getting everybody on the, on the same page here. Um, as practically everybody wrote on the survey and in answer to the question, who wins if we get this right? Everybody, communities, employers, employees, everybody. What we just have to do is to make sure that we all realize that that's what's at stake here. And it's at stake for everybody. Um, you know, number three takeaway from, from the podcast is that healthcare has its own economics. And I think that's probably something that everyone here knows really well. But the stark difference between healthcare economics and everybody else's economics is that quality and cost are not 
a zero sum game. It's not like you've got to pick one or the other. It's weird because oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes the, the, uh, uh, a um, less costly procedure is one, you know, a, a provider who's, uh, who um, is offering a less costly procedure is the one that actually is going to produce the best outcomes. Why is that? Because generally speaking, somebody that does a lot of something um, has better outcomes. But at the same time, if you do a lot of something, you're more efficient. So it's interesting um, that in general, more efficiency leads to lower prices, but you get better outcomes out of that. And here's why that matters and why that's inspirational. There's no trade-off between quality and cost a lot of times in, in healthcare. Um, you know, employees want great healthcare benefits to attract and retain great talent, right? Good news is that in most circumstances, the companies that have the best benefits who help their employees find the best health and stay that way um, with benefits that their employees love do so without spending any more money, um, you know, than, than those offering lesser benefits. In all likelihood, the, the costs will go down while people will get better care, right? The NUCA system is a perfect example of doing this well. Keynotes follow, spoiler alert. Um, and here's the last takeaway, and I don't want to belabor this, but solutions exist. <laughs> There's not uncharted territory here. There are roadmaps. There are any number of amazing fee-based advisors that are in this room right now who have ways to, to do this so that everybody out there, you know, can, can, can really win in this way. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, healthcare businesses in this country, they're businesses, they're vendors to employers and just like, you know, other vendors, employers know how to manage vendors, even really big ones with complicated business models. Um, so my aspirational takeaway to employers, at least, is do what you know how to do. You know, this is, this is definitely something that can be managed, not saying it's easy, this is obviously very complicated, but, you know, it's, it's definitely possible. And there's others who have come before who have charted the, the territory. So let me just talk a little bit about the, um, the sessions that are coming up today, because many of them are solutions, uh, you know, of those others who have come before that definitely we all can, can certainly learn from. Um, for example, the first keynote coming up this morning highlights the NUCA system of care. That's at 1045 in two minutes. Um, at 1230, we have David Contorno, who has agreed to submit to a fierce line of questioning that I've prepared for him today. Um, at 145, we're going to hear from Dr. Tony Dale, who's the founder of Sidera. And um, all these keynotes, by the way, are live. Please, there's a chat that's opening up. Some of you are already using it. Feel free to put whatever questions you would like in there. And then at the end, I'll be moderating um, questions. There's going to be track presentations at 11.45 Mountain Time and 1 p.m. Mountain Time for 45 minutes. Keep in mind, these are pre-recorded. They start with a pre-recorded presentation. Um, it's going to be the same presentation every time. So it's not like this is a a build, right? Um, they're not progressive tracks. After the pre-recorded presentation, though, there's going to be live Q&A. Um, so that's really beneficial. So you probably want to, there's eight tracks and there's two slots today. So you probably want to, you know, prioritize which ones that you go to so that you can hit the live Q&A. Uh, there's also a breakout 
group at the end of the day today, which is an open forum for discussion. So you might want to pop in there. If you need support on the homepage uh, that you came in through, there's um, a phone number, but then also an email address, Rosalind's email address. Feel free to send any questions, but also any feedback that you might have on the conference itself. You definitely can shoot that over as well. Um, one more thing about emails, there's going to be a feedback email that's sent out after the conference today. The hosts would really, really appreciate any uh, insights that you might be able to provide. Um, let me just thank our conference sponsors. They are Platinum. We've got Sidera, Medical Cost Sharing Program for Managing Large Healthcare Costs. We also have Your Heart Test, state-of-the-art health technology. So thank you so much to our Platinum sponsors. Gold sponsors include HCRM, Healthcare Predictive Analytics Company. We also have Resilience Pro for proactive mental health, Health Benefits Lab, which is an online community for controlling costs and improving health. Silver, we got Smith Communication Partners, which is a management consulting firm specializing in employee marketing and corporate communications. Bloomquist Hale for high utilization employee assistance programs. Also Orion. Uh, which is a pop health population health program. Bronze sponsors include Medisync, NFP, Redirect Health, Patient Pal, Going on Offense, Integrated Musculoskeletal Care, Spangler Associates, and Relentless Health Value Podcast. Um, yours truly here. Um, so I think with that, we are exactly on time um, to introduce our keynote for today. This first keynote is a masterclass in raising outcomes at lower costs from an award-winning healthcare system in Alaska. Who knew? Um, I'm talking about the NUCA system of care. So I'm really proud and pleased to introduce uh, Dr. Steve Tierney, who is Senior Director of Quality Improvement for the NUCA system of care. He was one of the key physicians who helped lead the transformation to a relationship-based, customer-owned healthcare system. He also played a key role in developing the data mart that helps NUCA's integrated care teams interpret complex, complex data. Um, also, I'm pleased to introduce Karen McIntyre, who works in strategic planning and development at NUCA. She's been very key in the application that led NUCA to become a Baldridge Baldridge Award-winning organization. So I will let the two of you take it from here. Oh, that's great, Stacey. Thanks so much. Um, so I guess, uh, oop, uh, there you go. Oh, that's great. Thanks so much. Um, so I guess we're live there, Ms. Karen. Um, shall I just get rolling? Yes, that'd be great. Okay. Okay, so uh, that's our title slide. Go on to the next slide there, Jake. So you probably heard a little bit about us from our Malcolm Baldridge um, you know, days. What we want to be able to do is juxtapose two sort of approaches. Uh, Lean is a manufacturing sort of methodology to improve the um, sort of efficiency of process. And uh, But what we, what we have done is we've combined Lean sort of approaches with Baldridge, which is more not necessarily about process efficiency, but about organizational alignment. And how can we actually align the organization so that um, the board, the C-suite, the senior leadership, the frontline staff, and the customers 
are all seeking and sort of driving toward the same aims, which is what really what Baldrige is about. So next slide. So we're going to talk about uh, how we collect feedback from customers, how we uh, both external, in other words, the people we serve, and internal from our own employees and staff. Uh, how do we analyze this and analyze data to guide improvement efforts? And how do we incorporate the Baldrige framework, which is really about organizational unity, organizational alignment, and a shared direction um, for us? Um, so, uh, you know, but how do we also use this to uh, make improvement a priority for employees in all areas of the organization? So, uh, next slide. This should piss you off. It pisses me off. Because if you took all of the nurses, dentists, LPNs, you know, physician's assistants, dental hygienists, radiology techs, lab techs, et cetera, and put them all together in the cost of healthcare, it would only be 27% of the, as it was in 2018, total cost of healthcare per year. All this red is the paperwork. I'm just going to be a little broad there, but that's the EHR vendor. That's the insurance pre-authorization. That's all the mandatory documentation from the regulators. Now, if you can tell me another business that will say, we're going to charge you for a service that we deliver and our operational overhead in addition to all the entire workforce we have is an additional 73% of our total bid for this, you would say, that's crazy. I mean, okay, I'll give you 20% over the top of your direct costs, maybe 25, you know, if it's a high quality service, but this is crazy. And I think this is the the, the challenge that we're faced with, because right now the people making money, you know, doing this do not want to change. So next slide. So here's what happens with that. Now, let's just think about the processing that's mandated for the insurance billing and counter creation and billing process. You call, you're a customer, you schedule an appointment, usually through a very user-friendly phone tree, which everyone enjoys. Um, and then you show up and you get checked in, you get your address verified, you get your insurance information verified. And then you are met by a medical assistant who will screen you, check your vital signs, get your weight, you know, stuff like that, and place you in a room. And then now, after you've encountered four other people, now you get to see the provider. After some period of time from your initial call and four other people in between you, now you get to get to what you want to talk about. And then we order labs and make diagnoses or order medications. And then someone else comes back in, you know, hopefully, and draws these things for you, or worse, in some cases, they'll send you someplace else to get your labs drawn, to add insult to process injury. Um, and then you schedule a follow-up appointment, guess what, very often, to just to discuss the results of these things, because that's how you make more money if revenue is your game. 
So this is five human beings, seven steps, and three potential billing, but all overhead waste. So next slide there, Jake. Uh, this is sort of another graphic rep uh, representation of what happens if you should, oh my God, make a referral to somebody else. You got to do the whole nine yards again. You got to check in. You got to make a phone call. You got to get room. You got to see the provider. They ask you some questions. You know, I mean, this whole sort of Ferris wheel of added wasteful process is what's really driving a lot of this. But what's driving that is the essentially rules of engagement by the insurance vendors and the regulators, as this is the only way work is allowable to be done. So go ahead, next slide. So what we said is what's really going on? You know, I mean, most of the time in ambulatory care, people need refills. This is not a shock. The most common prescription or lab order you write as a physician in a clinic is a refill, which means you know what it is, you know what it's for, the people have been on it, it's actually okay, you're just refilling it. Why, oh why, are we taking forever and a day to uh, make that okay when we know they should just stay on it? Then we monitor ongoing chronic disease. Why do you have to see a board-certified physician to get permission to get a refill, A, which we know you're going to get, and B, to check your blood pressure when they don't need to be involved in it? And the reason is, is because that's the way healthcare has been designed by the people who are allowed to design it, which would be the regulators and insurance payers. And we said, well, these are really not complicated things in many cases. Only about 30% of the people that we see really don't know what they have and need some help with some new direction. But the rest of it is fairly well delineated work that we could actually sort of redistribute. So next slide, Jake. Um, so what we said is, why don't we lean this up? Why don't we say, if we're still required to do the call, schedule the appointment, check in, and get your vitals checked, um, and then see the provider, why would we send you to another building, to another place, to A, get your blood drawn, B, get your EKG, C, see a mental health provider, a midwife, a pharmacist, a dietitian, a community services support specialist. What we have done is we've said all of those people are going to live in the same workspace. And think about this as baseball. The catcher has a unique skill set that is not duplicated by the pitcher, but both are necessary to play baseball. So what we have is in the same physical space, the pharmacist, the midwife, the primary care provider, the nurse case manager, the um, medical assistants, the uh, admin clerical assistants, the dietitians, you know, et cetera. But it means, though, that our throughput is there is no no-shows when you don't have to move your seat as the customer. The staff moves, you don't. Uh, next slide. So what we did was build the system around this core to say, if you look at the center, there is the customer owner who we serve as a healthcare recipient. Then there is their team 
which each one of our customer owners will have a four-person team with a primary care provider, a case manager, a medical assistant to help the primary care provider, and a clerical assistant, a CMS, to help the case manager take your calls in real time and see you at the same time. So the team can manage both the phone, the email, but also the office visit and not have to miss a beat. We will put in the same area uh, other people that can support this team to say, well, and if you need, in the same physical space are the people in the orange who you can say, ah, you know, you would benefit from seeing a pharmacist. We're going to start you on Coumadin. That's a very techie drug. You know, it's an anticoagulant. Things can happen that are not so great. Um, you know, let's make sure they give you the full skinny on what you need to know to make sure you're safe on Coumadin. They'll join you in a moment. Um, but this is a way to be able to say, how do we make the fewest steps between what somebody needs and when they get it? And how can we reduce organizational overhead? Because you saw that the biggest opportunity for financial improvements is reducing overhead waste in healthcare. So that's where we took our shot. Now, we also have other people strategically positioned uh, who will be on demand. The folks in green will be people that a, um, uh, a team can call to say on demand, we need to uh, talk to an HIV consultant, a colorectal cancer screening coach, a lactation consultant, a home visiting nurse, or a psych team to be able to say we may need somebody who has a more significant you know, mental health, you know, problem to manage, and we want to make sure that they're supported well. Let's just hand them off in real time to you to help you get that done. We have in purple, which would be uh, the more traditional people who we will have to refer out to. And these will be the oncologist, the ENT, the surgeon, but these are typically specific skill set providers who need a special architectural footprint and special space to do the things that they do, because you're not going to be able to reproduce optometry into the primary care medical home. They do need to say, you know, is this clear or is that clear, you know, um, you know, with all the gear they need. Uh, so next slide. So here is what's actually going on. If you look at this in a game theory model, the health insurance and the accreditation regulators Joint Commission, NCQA, you know, et cetera. They want healthcare costs to be high. If healthcare costs are high and your insurance organization, premiums are also high. If healthcare costs are high, the regulators, now the value of their sticker to get you certified for NCQA, for Joint Commission, et cetera, goes up and you need it more. Pharmaceutical vendors also want healthcare costs to be high because then in, with relation, relation to other costs, their pharmaceuticals that are already overpriced don't look quite so bad in comparison to a $70,000 total need. EHR vendors are essentially mirroring what the insurance and accreditation people want as far as the paperwork. And then you have your C-suite executives that are stuck in a Faustian bargain to say, 
the health insurance folks and the EHR vendors are saying, if I don't do it this way, I will never get paid. What am I going to do? So the problem is we've not created a new way forward. And I think what we really want to do is trigger for you the thought of why am I paying this much overhead? How can they possibly defend that? And I will tell you, I don't think that they can. Next slide. So what we talk about is transactional versus relational. So I'll give you an example of the two. Transactional sort of interactions between people are more about, I want something and you get it for me. So if this is a, um, I don't know, a lawnmower, then I would say, yeah, sure. I would like that lawnmower and you give me that lawnmower that's transactional. So I'll give you an example of where it wasn't. So uh, spring came this year and I went out in my back, you know, patio and the, I have pavered or I had pavered patio pavers in there. And there are these red brick pavers. They look lovely. They had little designs in them and stuff like that. Uh, but it was a really rough winter and they frost heaved and it looked like a roller coaster. I mean, they were all over the place. You know, it was just a mess, you know, and I'm like, well, that's really great. I, I'm going to have to fix that. So I called a guy who I've known for a long time and I said, you know, I'm going to need to replace the patio pavers. You know, I, I just need a cost on it. You know, can you do this? And um, it is disturbing. Karen's laughing at me because I have a that kind of a relationship with the guy who does all the improvement stuff <laughs> at my house. Um, but um, but he, he said, you don't want that. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but look, they're a mess. He goes, yeah, you don't want that. Because if I give that to you in five years, you're going to call me again. And I'm going to have to do it again because the same thing's going to happen. So he says, here's what you want. You want concrete. And I'm like, I, I don't know. Concrete. I, I like the red things, you know, uh, the, the, the color. And I like the pattern in it and everything like that. And he goes, tell you what, we'll stain the concrete red and we'll stamp a pattern in it. How's that? And I'm like, you're right. I don't want brick patio pavers. I want concrete that's red with a design in it. Please proceed. That is a relational interaction where I think I want something, but what I'm, what I'm told is I don't really want, what I really want is something better yet than that. But he could have taken my money and he could have taken it again in five years. He didn't. That's the kind of thing that we want to establish at South Central is help people with expert opinion assist people who need that ex expert opinion, but create an environment where they feel like, I think I want this, but you tell me, what do you think I want? Because I trust you because I know you and we have, you know, uh, a past together. Uh, so next slide. So uh, what we have done is we said, it's not about the process. The joint commission, the, um, you know, CMS, the insurance payers, will want to be able to say, every time you have somebody with diabetes, you should refer them to the dietitian so that they can get coached, um, you know, with regard to their diet and diabetes and all that sort of stuff. And they said, we will measure that process. And we said, why? Because isn't it only important if their sugar's controlled? Is this more about the process, which is what the payer will want, and less about the outcome 
And we said, no, it's, it's completely about the outcome. If we fail to get that sugar under control, it doesn't matter how many, di- how many dietitian visits you had. Calling it good just because we did the process is not sufficient for us. We said we've got to make sure we manage, measure, and track the outcomes. So uh, next slide. So what we did was we took a lean approach, and this is on the top, the old hospital system, which looks like a supermax prison from the 50s, Um, and this is our new campus. Um, This is where I started to work. I actually started in the 90s, you know, with with the system, and uh, now where we work today. But what we're trying to do is, is... Understand that this costs a lot and it's super inconvenient and it's really sort of injurious for both the workforce we employ and the people we care for unless we do it different. And our mantra has been for this last 20 years to say we must do it different. It's imperative. It's unconscionable to accept as okay why it costs so much and do nothing about it. And we think that if there's enough sort of awareness of what's actually going on and how badly the entire country is being fleeced, then we can actually say, why would you pay an insurance provider for the insurance provider to turn around and simply deny every claim they can? If you're an employer, why wouldn't you pay a healthcare delivery system and skip that and get value for your money that you spend. But I'm going to let Ms. Karen, so, so my job was to kind of wind you up a little bit and kind of get you a little pissed. Ms. Karen uh, is going to use her superpowers to be able to say, and if you do it right, what does this mean for people, community, and healthcare? And how can we actually seek a new way forward? But Ms. Karen, I'm going to- Yes, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Steve. So. Um, In this picture, you can see the old hospital. What Steve shared so well is when we're talking about creating a culture of continuous improvement, we have to recruit for and hire people who are excited about change and who want to make changes. And what I appreciated about Stacy sharing at the beginning, the question are, is it really the people um, who work um, for the organizations or is it the organizations and are they really in alignment And here at South Central Foundation, I think that we weren't always in alignment, um, but as we have gotten better at recruiting, hiring individuals um, who have in their um, body this idea and this goal to change and always improve, uh, we've gotten better at that. Uh, I come from three generations working in healthcare. I also, my first job was at the old hospital that you see in the picture. Uh, My grandmother and my mother also worked at that old hospital. And to see the changes over time in the community uh, and how people engage in healthcare has been um, one of our greatest joys. So if you can go to the next slide. One way that we have done that is continue to have a leadership commitment to looking at how to drive improvement. One of the tools that we've selected to do that is the Baldridge Program. The reason why we appreciated the Baldrige program and started our journey back in the early 2000s is because it wasn't prescriptive. It really set the framework to ask specific questions 
Um, and it was aligned with our values as an organization. The other reason that we uh, began with the Baldridge program as a tool for improvement was the shared language. We could learn from people outside of healthcare and use the same language and the same criteria and questions in order to continually improve. So we may have, uh, and we did, uh, learn uh, about onboarding programs for healthcare workers from fast food restaurants. That seems like a crazy idea. And when we realized that we had to change everything, uh, how we were going to do that was by looking outside of healthcare to look for best practices. Also, our commitment um, to looking for and improving was because we are customer owners. I'm a customer owner, part of our history, part of the keynote that you heard yesterday from April and Doug about how uh, we're owned and operated um, by the community, with the community. And when we started that journey, we did have to learn. And how we learned is we got support from consultants uh, that taught us about the Baldridge framework. And then we brought that internal and created our own Baldridge uh, training and uh, for our staff. And then we hired subject matter experts who became expert uh, as improvement staff to help facilitate those changes. So if you go to the next slide, our commitment to looking for excellence and innovation has awarded us um, many um, accolades. And this is not to say that we don't have anything to learn. Um, part of continuous improvement is knowing that there's still lots to learn, right? When, you, when your customer owners raise the bar, we still uh, are not necessarily meeting the needs of our customer owners. So we have to change and look for those opportunities based on the data to see where those improvements are needed. Next slide. If you look at our Baldridge journey, um, you can see that um, we it, it's been a journey. Um, we started by submitting our first application to the national program in 2005. One of the best things about applying is that when you apply, you have an outside um, look at um, your organization and you get this very large feedback report. That feedback report um, lets us know uh, right where those opportunities for improvement are. Um, good to say is that it has continued to be a, a journey for us and we have learned from each application um, where those opportunities for improvement uh, continue to be and where we can make changes in order to meet the needs of our community. Sharing the Baldrick journey, again, is one tool that we've used in order to continuously improve our system of care for our customer owners. And if you go to the next slide, I'll share how we've kind of integrated that Baldrick framework into everything that we do. So where we've integrated that is throughout the organization. I'm just gonna highlight a few places where we've taken the Baldridge framework um, and looked at the categories of leadership strategy, um, customer, uh, customer focus, measurement, workforce focus, and operations, and of course the results associated with that in order to be a high performing organization. Uh, where we have really looked at uh, incorporating the Baldrige framework is through our strategic planning process. So when we're talking about alignment of staff, 
um, to help us reach our vision and mission as an organization. That starts with the strategic planning process. And as part of your onboarding as a new employee, you learn about our strategic planning process. You have an opportunity to know how your job um, and where you work helps us achieve our vision and mission. And everybody is on a performance improvement plan. Part of our strategic planning process is to create a strategic input document. So prior to planning, we look at all of those areas in Baldridge, what's happening with um, um, legislators, what's happening with payers, what's happening with our finances, what's happening with our customers and our employee engagement. Um, all of those data points start our strategic planning process where we do an assessment at the beginning of the year to help inform where those areas of improvement are so we can continually um, improve. We also have processes where we share information. So when we're talking about workforce and operations, ensuring all employees um, have opportunity to hear and have a say in what we do and how we do that, that's through our functional committee structure. Our functional committee structure is also um, loosely tied around the Baldridge framework where we have committees from across the organization that look at workforce focus, that look at customer focus, that look at quality, for example. In designing new programs, we also look very closely at what our customer is saying and what they want and need, and I'll give you some specific examples of that. We have also chosen as an organization to support improvement and innovation. Not only are one of our four workforce competencies improvement and innovation for all employees, it is also that we have an organizational de development department and an OD division that um, is funded and supports and helps facilitate uh, changes across the organization. Um, if you go to the next slide, when we think about relationship-based systems and when we think about how we engage with our community to meet their needs, this is a very simple process that I think that anybody in any service industry could uh, learn, learn from. And what we do is we listen. We listen to the community. We hear what they want and need. We take action. And the important part, which we learned along the way, is we need to provide that feedback. What does that feedback mean? It means that we heard you, we did something about it, and this is the result of it. And we've had to work at each of these um, components because if you think back to our beginning, there was no trust in the, com in the community for our healthcare services. Now, 25, uh, you know, 30 years later, there is that trust because we've listened, we've take, we took action, and then we provided feedback to the community. If you go to the next slide, one way that we've done that, right, is nomenclature. So words are important. What we say, how we say them is important um, to help share our story and to provide feedback. Instead of patients, you heard from April and Doug that we call our um, patients, customer owners. Uh, I am a customer owner. Uh, that is important to know that as a customer, I am, as somebody who owns the system, I have a strong voice and people are going to be able to be open to hearing um, that feedback. How we do that is many different ways. And if you go to the next slide, we'll talk about how we listen. 
there's many different ways of listening. Um, and we have informal ways, personal interactions with your integrated care team. We have social media. We have comment cards. We do surveys. We have an email process where anybody can go to our website and, and email our CEO. And then we have um, satisfaction surveys. We also have formal processes. So we have an annual employee engagement survey. We also have service agreements. Part of our community leadership and our advisory committees and our governing board are all uh, customer owners and come from the community. If you go to the next slide. Part of um, what happens after we listen is you got to take action. Some of the examples of taking action based on what we heard from our customer owner are relationship-based health care uh, that Steve um, so eloquently uh, shared and how we do that. Modeling our vision and mission, empowering our customer owners, and creating a community of wellness and expecting that. One of the tools that we do use in order to make that happen, if we go to the next slide, is re building relationships. So we have um, workforce learn how um, through a core concepts training to learn how to share story, how to engage with interactions, how to meet people where they're at, and how to respond to story um, in a way that makes people feel accepted and comfortable. Um, that has resulted in improvements from the beginning. So once we built the relationships and people trust in those relationships, then we uh, have been able to continually um, engage the community and continue to ask for where those opportunities for, uh, are. If you go to the next slide, what our community said from the beginning was they didn't want to tell their story over and over. And they didn't want the provider to be a hero. They wanted to um, you know, be in relationship with their primary care provider. We did in-depth community assessments um, and people shared their top needs. Their top needs were about relationships. They were about um, ending domestic violence, child abuse, child neglect, and a behavioral health. Years later, we continue to engage, and the needs of the uh, community were the same. They want more alcohol, drug, uh, and tobacco uh, programs. They're concerned about oral health, again, behavioral health, food and nutrition, and cardiovascular health, which is much different from the needs that they had um, you know, years before. So it's important to continually uh, engage the community and listen to see where those needs are how the community will feel comfortable about providing that feedback is if we tell them, hey, we heard you and this is what we did about it. So if you go to the next slide, some of the ways and tools that South Central Foundation has to provide that feedback is through um, creating our own newspaper. We have an Anchorage Native News that provides information um, to our community. We have social medias, we have health boards, we have tribal councils. And we also have hotlines. Um, if you go to the next slide, what you might be hearing is really the voice of the customer owner drives the improvements. So in order to make that happen, um, we need to be continually engaging the community and hearing in new ways in order to see where those opportunities for improvement. With more than half of our employee and our workforce coming from the community, one strong voice is also 
um, our employees who work here, as well as um, the voice of um, how the work gets done. So there's many different ways uh, that we look at and tools to drive improvement, and, and these are uh, several different examples. If you go to the next slide, when we're talking about our continuous journey, one of those ways is using the Baldrige criteria in order as a continuous process. So um, when we first started in 2003, um, we applied in 2005 and we wrote the application, we provided training, but what we realized is that we couldn't just put the criteria um, on a shelf and not look at it again. We needed to continue to look at those, um, those Baldrige categories and ask the questions on how we are improving and using the feedback reports to continually look for the opportunities for improvement and um, the tools that we needed in order to continually improve. If you go to the next slide, I wanna share, um, you know, we're almost out of time and we're gonna open it up for questions, but we have opportunities uh, to go into more detail about uh, our models for improvement and how we engage the community. And we're really excited because the fall conference is going to be the first time that we're going to be in person and people are going to be invited uh, after the pandemic to come to Alaska and visit us. And we hope that you uh, choose to do that. Um, so we're open for questions. Awesome. So if anyone has any questions, please feel free to put them into the chat. Um, I have a burning question to kick us off here. Um, so you've showed some slides that, that talked about the amount of admin costs that are common in the Continental 48, that glorious or inglorious in pie chart with the big red admin area, um, which you're absolutely right, is a little angering, right? Um, you know, th there's down here in the lower 48, there's a whole administrative cottage industry that's dedicated to upcoding, you know, which is how a provider organization gets paid the most for any given patient visit to, you know, code up the level of complexity. So, you know, how does the NUCA system reconcile that, you know, those two which almost would seem to be counterpoints? the whole being efficient and minimizing admin slash overhead costs, but at the same time, not losing money that's sitting there on the table. This is sort of the difference between revenue and margin. So when you spend $100 in order to make 95, you're still in the hole, but that was one more billing opportunity. So what we do is look at the operational impact of the service find out does it reduce our overhead costs and uh, what is the cost of going through all the paperwork and billing process and submission, claims denial, etc. So we had certain services that were absolutely vital for us to continue to have a high quality customer outcome. An example is home health. So we said almost 70% of the time our home health visiting nurses, 70% of their day was paperwork. It was all the little check boxes, all the little screens, all the little forms, all the little authorizations that they had to fill out 
for the privilege of getting bills and only 30%, maybe a little bit more, you know, 30, 35 was spent actually doing healthcare for people. So what we said is what if we didn't bill for their services and watched what happened to the impact they had with hospital readmissions, ER visits, et cetera. So what we found was there was a 300% uptick in direct time spent with customers, engaging, talking, caring for them. As soon as we absolve them of the requisite grunt work of the paperwork. So suddenly we started doing healthcare again and not charting. Because what we've done is turned into a nation of highly trained medical people who are now uh, engaged primarily in typing. And that's probably not what we want to do, probably not what they dreamed of doing when they went into healthcare. And what we found is the revenue saved by waste reduction and quality outcome improvements exceeded the bills that we would have potentially regained. So our margin, our operating margin went up, even though our revenue went down. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, as probably every employer knows, you've got your gross revenue and your net revenue. <laughs> um, right. It doesn't matter how high your gross is if your net is too low. Yeah. It's, it's how much do you take to the bank? And right. Precisely. You know, this being said, is this something that, um, you know, we could rely on a fee-for-service hospital to roll out themselves? No, no. They're stuck because they've made sort of a Faustian choice to say our job is to, the problem is, is they're caught in a loop where I've hired all these legions of people to process my claims, go through claim senile, you know, uh, maintain the EHR, uh, maintain all the forms required now to be able to submit a claim. But you have to understand the incentive of an insurance company. An insurance company's job is to collect as much money as they possibly can and deny as much payment as they possibly can get away with. So they're going to put as many barriers in place and why the regulators are so important to them is because if you build 140 or more steps, which there is, in any office visit for a clinician, there's 140 elements that need to be collected. If I miss one as a doc, then I can get denied for payment. So this is almost like a choice between the regulators and the payers. Yeah, sure. Make all kinds of crazy nonsense process. It's great for us. It gives us more reasons to deny. Now, does it help anybody? No. <laughs> as far as healthcare goes, it's fantastic for us because our profits are just through the roof. 2008, when the big cataclysmic crash happened, you know, for the U.S., guess who completely escaped any injury? Insurance and pharmaceutical. So, you know, it, it's interesting um, what you say. In fact, I was just looking at something the other day that said one in five patients who get sent home from the hospital and told to do infusions at home, which is a lot of patients. It was tens of thousands of, 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 of patients every you know month or something get sent home. 
it's 186 steps a day to do a home infusion. I mean, it's not easy. You're asking a patient to do 186 steps by themselves. You know, home health is, you know, obviously it's really essential. And, you know, obviously they can't, which is why 20% of them wind up back in the hospital. You know, so obviously there's a very strong incentive if you're paying for that readmission, which, as we all know, can cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, there's a huge incentive for employers to be doing that. But at the same time, you kind of have this, well, we need to make sure that we're not violating the in intimacy of the patient-doctor relationship by getting a third party that's, you know, involved here, which could potentially you know, and somehow interfere with the doctor-patient relationship. How do you address that? Do, do you mean uh, another third party, like a, a home health, uh, you know, service or something? Yeah, the, the, the frequent pushback that you'll get from provider organizations whenever a, um, a, a payer, somebody just wrote, there's little patient-physician intimacy right now. That may be the case <laughs> if you talk to patients. <laughs> Generally, if you talk that's to true. providers, that's their, yeah. <laughs> That's what they say all the time, like stop getting in, you know, stop it insurance carrier, employer, whoever else, like you're practicing medicine without a license and you're getting in, you're, you're, you're messing up my mojo. So, so the way we design it is each team of six provider teams who have four people on it, there is one home visiting nurse attached to that work unit. So these are not outside people. These are directly employed SCF staff who we will say, well, today I need a behavioral health consultant or a pharmacist, but tomorrow I need a home visiting nurse. Why don't you send our team's home visiting nurse out just to check out what's going on, make sure they're okay, and see what that wound is like because that dressing is going to need to be changed. Um, so for us, the value we extract from having them and also saying, and the paperwork is just what you need to write to do reasonable, medical, prudent thing and communicate with the team who sent you back. So for us, there is no conflict because we directly employ them and they're working directly with the teams who sent them. Um, and, we, and we did that on purpose to say there can't be any misalignment of incentives or direction or care delivery. It needs to be Baldridge. It needs to be, you know, right up against each other. So what you have really is sort of an extension of your a team extension of your of your work unit. Yeah, for, for sure. And and I think what you just said, I want to underline that maybe once or twice. Because I think the point that you're making is that, you know, even with home health services here, you know, outside of the NUCA system, there's still silos that are being created. You know, so like every time we add a physician service, we're counterproductive in the sense that we have a tendency to add another silo of people who are working that aren't sharing information and, and you know, all the bad things that result from that. So, it, you know, it sounds like the thing that NUCA has managed to accomplish very admirably is ensuring that anyone that touches the patient is part of one constellation, uh, all of whom are sharing information. So, you know, every time we add a specialist or add a service, we're not further segmenting the patient's care into ever smaller little piles. Right. Yeah. And it means that the home visiting nurse 
uh, will need orders to do whatever they need to do. The person who writes the orders will be the very same doc who sent them out there, not a contract physician who's managing the home health visiting service. Um, same for our pain support physicians, same for our, you know, um, uh, proceduralists, you know, and things like that. The, the same thing, the home team is really the orchestra leader for all of this, and they will funnel all that through them. Um, and uh, is it implemented in other areas besides Alaska? Uh, yes, it is. As a matter of fact, there is a, a NUCA uh, clinics in Singapore, in their polyclinics, uh, in New Zealand, and in Scotland. There are NUCA model integrated care delivery clinics. Um, so, yes, it is, you know, uh, in other places. Um, I would say there is a, a few other places that don't necessarily call it the NUCA model, but uh, the Eastern Band Cherokee Nation with uh, their CEO, Casey Cooper, is rocking it in North Carolina. And because he has actually said, well, why wouldn't I build a hospice right on top of my hospital and right next to the primary care center so that everybody from the hospitalist, from the primary care team, to the hospice, to the, you know, everybody in between is all playing from the same sheet of music on the same team with the same incentives for the same customers. I mean, if you, if you want to say, is there anybody who's taken our game up a notch, that'd be the place. Interesting. And, you know, speaking of the hospitalists and, and sort of other specialists, in the um, lower 48, you know, maybe you could get into a little bit more detail about if somebody has some kind of rare disease. And you talked about this a little bit, and they need special infrastructure, I think was how you, you put it. So now they're outside of the, of the NUCA system. How do you make sure that that doesn't break off and become its own little silo? So what we did was we did service agreements with our consultant specialists. So if you're the cardiologist, the thing you do best, your superpower, as it were, is you do caths and stints, you know, uh, pre-op valves, stress echoes, echoes, all that sort of stuff. None of that any of the medical home folks have the license or ability to do. Same thing for pulmonology, same thing for ENT, all that sort of stuff. So what we did is we said, Listen, fellas, how about we do this? Uh, you're a cardiologist. Why don't you strictly attend to cath stints, treadmills, echoes, stress echoes? We will refill all the cholesterol meds, all the blood pressure meds, all the heart failure meds, and we will monitor all the labs as you say they should be monitored because we have the workforce to continue to turn that you know, wheels so the bus continue to move forward. We're, we're going to absolve you of all this. Well, what we found is the specialists were like, you mean to tell me I can spend my entire day doing the stuff I love to do more than anything else and you'll eat the rest? Yep, that's what we're going to do. So what it actually helped them to do is refocus their attention instead of following up to see a board-certified interventional cardiologist to refill cholesterol medicine, because that's nuts. Just get them the med, draw their lab, make sure it's okay, and if everything's fine, the cardiologist can continue. But what we had to do is be really prescriptive with that, to say, ENT, you're doing tubes, you're doing tonsils, you're doing this other stuff, we will take care of follow-up for chronic otitis media refill of this. 
Interesting. And, you know, um, along those same lines, someone had put in the chat that there's that there are advanced primary care clinics um, that a number of employers, the, the more innovative ones, are actually achieving great success with. And, you know, that's also happening on, in, in Medicare as well um, and, and getting some pretty good results. But here's my question for you. Why wouldn't we just have a PCP? You know, like a lot of times um, you have PCPs, like there's a direct primary care model where it's basically just one primary care physician who's running the, the, the show. That would seem to reduce a lot of the need to have such amazing communication and, and whatnot. So it would seem to be a lot simpler. Why don't we just have a one PCP that's being the PCP? Why do we need all these other behaviorists and social workers and the whole other? Oh, I see. I see. Um, okay. Um... I think what we found is um, you, and I call it, what's your superpower? You know, um, what are you not doing when you're doing something else? So could, as a family doc, I work on counseling, you know, with somebody who's had a depressive episode and I've started on meds. Yeah, I, I could do that. I'm not doing new diagnosis for diabetes or heart failure or anything like that as I attend to that. So this is about work distribution. Um, is there anyone else in the building that could do this unique thing for ongoing supportive counseling to say you've lost your job and your spouse has passed and you just retired, you know, and you're really having a difficult time now living alone. Um, and that's a big adjustment for you to make, you know, could they do it and would they have importantly the bandwidth to do it well? and allow me to do the things they can't. So what we do is call it working at the top of your license. So if there's something I could do, but somebody else could do it as well, or potentially have more time to do it, we will say that warrants an integrated care team member. Pharmacy, there's a good example. Dietitian. Oh, I've made the diagnosis of diabetes. I'm a family doc. I can do that. I've told you, you need to start monitoring your sugar. And um, I'm going to have somebody come in to show you how to use the little finger stick machine or set you up with one of these really techy little freestyle Libre things that'll give you your glucose pretty much all the time, you know, um, and uh, show you how to do that because they, they have the time and the bandwidth it allows me to make a new diagnosis, which they can't do. I hope that is true. The, the other thing that I'd like to say real quickly about that, from a customer owner perspective or a patient perspective, within our NUCA system of care, it still feels like you have your PCP, right? Your relationship is always with that one primary care provider, and that's who you engage with. So I know because I work here, there's a whole team around um, them that he could go to or that he can, you know, encourage me to, you know, go to uh, speak with a dietitian, for example. And from a, a community perspective, our community wanted that relationship with the one PCP, and that's what we've built our system around. That's really interesting. And, you know, just to, to kind of riff off something that you were talking about earlier that's adjacent to what you just said, you know, so if we're talking about employers, let's just say down here, who are looking to set up an advanced primary care 
um, clinic. We're going to have, obviously, employees who don't know anything about that clinic. And, and you know, they're going to this specialist and they're going to that PCP. You know, obviously you've done a, a bunch of work and you listed kind of some media outlets and whatnot that, you know, you're using to inform the, you know, the potential patient population or the customer owners um, that have access to your clinics about the clinic. But what advice might you have for, you know, employers or anyone that's trying to set up an advanced primary clinic to make sure that you know employees, patients, consumers, owners know what the advantages are. You know they may have had experiences with primary care. You know you you call and you you've got some you, you know you, you have the flu and they're like oh well we can fit you in in three weeks. You know like there's a lot of negative perceptions that people have about primary care that maybe you were dealing with pre nuca. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice relative to if I'm starting from scratch here and I just set up this amazing thing, how do I express the benefits in a win-win way to the employees that I'm looking to attract? So what we did was we, uh, we used that mantra top of the license all the time. So we say if you're a primary provider and you're seeing somebody to refill their medications and you're not going to change them, should you be doing that or should somebody else be doing that? If you're a primary provider and you're seeing somebody to update their vaccinations or draw their blood tests or, or you know, something like that, could somebody else be doing that? And the answer is, yeah. You know, So what we've done is we've rerouted that, but within the same integrated team. So all the routine blood draws, routine vaccinations, routine vital sign checks will go to a medical assistant attached to my clinic in my example um, and then I will see the results but I will not participate in the collection of any of those things I'll just sort of review them and I'll give some feedback to the team you know and to the you know uh, customer owner and say hey here's how it's going wow look at that you got your blood drawn way to go you know hey things are looking good or or we need to make some changes um, but what we had to do is automate the more standard, low acuity, or very well-defined stuff away from the physician visit. Now, what that delivers is our next available appointment is now measured in minutes for the next available appointment when you call, not days or weeks. So for us, it's about 240 minutes. Depends upon the time of year, you know, it varies a little bit. So, or global pandemics that, you know, threw a wrinkle in it. Um, but for us, it's pretty much on demand. When you call in the morning, we can see you today. And if we can't see you, we may say, but what do you need? You know, if you don't need to come in, what, what else? You need? Well, I need that cream you gave me two years ago. Oh, the Triamcinolone? Yeah, yeah, that was it. No problem. Done. We'll call you in a week or so, make sure it's going okay. But why would you come in for the what we already know we're probably going to do, let's just do it. Um, now, we missed a billing opportunity. But what we did was now create an opening that may have diverted to the emergency room or may have delayed and got worse. So uh, we had to actually be as good speed-wise as the ER and far more satisfying as an interaction. That's a really interesting insight. And maybe that's the hook to, you know, ensure that 
you know, if patients and everybody talks about this, people want convenience, you know, like that's Amazon's whole business model and they apparently are doing pretty well, um, you know, to, to, you know to, to offer things with one click. So, you know, it, it sounds like having a clinic that has immediately accessible, uh, immediately accessible team um makes the advanced primary clinic potentially the most convenient and therefore that could be the initial um interaction that someone has and then from that initial interaction a further relationship could could build from there yeah now also you got to remember the tools make the work so if i have a hammer and a bunch of screws i can nail them into a board but a screwdriver would be way better you know, so when the insurance payers say, well, you got to use a certified EHR. Oh, right. There's really only two vendors that are certified. Huh. Funny that's. Well, it's Cerner or Epic. You got to use one of them and they won't let you send a video file or a picture. They won't let you chat with your team. And guess what? That's not hard to do. You can chat with people in a social media type interaction, all sorts of ways. And the two major EHR vendors that almost all insurance payers mandate you use cannot. And guess what? Guess how much these EHR software costs? We're a small system. We take care of about 100,000 people across the native you know, healthcare system, maybe 120,000 but not, not a lot, you know, with about 5,000 staff between South Central and the hospital staff. Um, our EHR costs $16 million a year for software, I'm just going to say, that's crap. Yeah, it's, um, that's quite the PEPM, just right there, you know? Right, as, but, as but I have to use it because Medicare, Medicaid, and the private insurance are not going to allow me to use anything else besides stuff that looks like Windows 95. In today's world, I have to use this stuff and pay a vast fortune. Let me tell you, TikTok would be a better way to access healthcare and talk about what's going on in your life and share it with who you want to share it with. Um, and why does it take two weeks and a bunch of letters to get your lab results? You know, that's crazy. You know, you should get them in real time. It you sounds know. like we need to have another um, yeah. part two. <laughs> I have a feeling we could talk about that for two hours. Oh, God, um, yeah. Yeah, so I really want to make sure that I, I thank Dr. Steve Tierney and Karen McIntyre for this conversation. Next up, we have the breakout um, tracks. So log on um, to the, uh, the, the track sessions, and then we'll see you back for our keynote um, at, um, in, in an hour or so. Thank you so much.